Amen. Thank you, Jason. It is not easy to lead worship and teach and preach uh, into a camera knowing you are somewhere else in the world listening or watching. And, uh, and so you just got to forget all that and just uh, worship. And I just really appreciate Jason, you doing that, leading us in that. Um, he's, he's not a worship leader. He's a lead worshiper. And so thank you for that. And I say that because for you now, the challenge is wherever you are at to remove distractions and to not be distracted by the television or the, the phone screen or the computer screen, but to take this time now as we open God's word together to allow him to speak to you and to truly allow this to be a time of worship uh, in your heart. And so uh, we have made it, this is our fourth week in John chapter 11, uh, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we've actually made it to the section of, of chapter 11 where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from, from the dead. And, uh, and so next week we're going to come back and then look at the aftermath and what happens after that. Um, but we're going to actually read uh, verses 38 through 44 together and then we will get started. So this is John chapter 11 starting in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you that God, when we open your word together, you speak through it to us. And God, we're praying that would happen today. That not only are we observing what Jesus, you did for Lazarus by raising him from the dead, but that we might understand more deeply what that has to do with our lives and what it has to do with, with our faith that we believe in a resurrected Savior who promises a resurrection to us as well. And so, Father, now as we dig into the scriptures, we pray your voice would be heard. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So we've, we're really at the point in the story where Jesus' words are going to be put to the test. So earlier in the story, uh, we begin with the disciples. They're um, at a, in a distant town, and they, they hear the news that Lazarus is ill and, and, and deathly ill. And Jesus says, listen, this, this illness of Lazarus is not pointed at his death. It's pointed at my glory. So everything that happens through these events is going to be about me making myself known and glorifying myself in front of your eyes. And then... Uh, Jesus and the disciples make their way to the town where Lazarus has died. And by the time they get there, uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. 
And so Martha, uh, the sister of Mary and Lazarus, so you know Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Martha runs out to greet Jesus and they have a, an exchange. And then after that, Jesus comes into town and meets with Mary. And so this is where we're picking up uh, the story. And really what's going to be put to the test here is something Jesus said to Martha uh, when he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Like it's one thing to claim that. It's a whole other thing to be standing in front of a tomb uh, praying that God would raise somebody from the dead uh, to display that power of being the resurrection and the life. So this is really the place where Jesus' words are put to the test. And so we begin in verse 38 with these words, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And we get a description. It was a cave, like a hole in the ground, and it had a stone that laid against it. It's very much like the tomb that Jesus is going to be buried in um, after his death. But this is the second time now that we read that Jesus has been deeply moved. So last week, Jeremy was preaching, Jeremy Williams, and he talked about this idea that Jesus has been deeply moved. And the Greek word here is embryomai, which may mean nothing to you, but it's a really significant word here uh, in understanding who Jesus is in his response here. And so this word, this Greek word, uh, means to be deeply moved, but it also means to have an intense, strong feeling of concern, often um, connected to the implication of indignation, or it means to exhibit irritation or even anger um, or to express harsh reproof. So it's not just an emotion, it's a very specific emotion of indignation or frustration or anger on Jesus's part. So we have to ask, what is Jesus frustrated about here in the story? The same word gets translated in Matthew 9:30 this way, and Jesus sternly warned them. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 143, we read it again, Jesus sternly charged him. So that sternly, that's the understanding of how, what Jesus is feeling right here uh, in John eleven thirty eight. 38, when we read that Jesus is deeply moved. Now, different perspectives on where this frustration is coming from. Um, the great theologian uh, John Calvin says this, that this word means that Jesus was groaning within himself at the violent tyranny of death. So even though Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die and allowed that to happen, he's still angry at the power of death in the world. And that's why he's deeply moved to this point of frustration. John Piper has a different take. He would say that this is, uh, this is a description of Jesus being deeply disturbed, that his motives and his power are being questioned. That has certainly happened over and over again. Right, where Martha's like, I know you can, you can do this, but, 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 but are you going to? And Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, I, I know about the final resurrection, Jesus, but Lazarus is dead today. And then again with Mary in the conversation where Mary says to Jesus, Jesus, if you would have just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so we know that from Jesus's followers and from this family of siblings that love Jesus deeply and they believed in Jesus, there was doubt that Jesus could actually do something about Lazarus. So maybe this frustration was when it was, was um, motivated by their doubt that all hope had been lost. And so what we know about this story is that someone that Jesus loves deeply has been allowed to die so that Jesus might be glorified as the one who holds the power over life and death. We think about what that means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
verse 26, we get a description of death this way, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That statement means the last enemy of God in the entire universe that will be destroyed is death itself. So God looks at death as an enemy. We trail death back to Genesis 2. We know that, that death itself is rooted in disobedience to God's sin, where God said to Adam, if you disobey me, if you do this thing I'm telling you not to do, you will surely die. And what happens in that moment is catastrophic for God's creation. Beginning with Adam and Eve, their relationship with one another is no longer built in trust. They're, they're full of shame. They hide from each other. We know that their relationship with God um, is now infiltrated with shame and guilt. So they're hiding from God. And, and even beyond that, we know that, that the, the implications of this will, will, will show up in childbirth and, and working. And, and we see in the very next chapter, Cain and Abel, two brothers, Cain kills Abel. And from here, creation itself now is fractured, it is marred, it is tainted by death. And so what the Bible would say is at that moment of their disobedience, death begins to reign on the earth. And death will continue to reign until death itself is put to death or destroyed. And so we can certainly see from Jesus' perspective a frustration and an anger uh, with this tyranny of death. And now it has found its way to Lazarus, one who Jesus deeply loved. Romans chapter 8 describes the groaning of creation as a result of the tyranny of death. This is just a few verses from Romans 8, starting in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So even creation has a sense of groaning and indignation and frustration with this tyranny of death. And verse 23 says, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, our resurrection, a day where death will no longer have a sting, it will no longer have dominion, it will no longer be a tyrant on the earth. And so I would say more than likely what we're reading here in Jesus being deeply moved is this, that it reveals to us that Jesus was moved with a profound sorrow at the death of his friend and, and at this, this grief that his other friends, Mary and Martha, are experiencing as they suffered. And at the same time, Jesus was also deeply moved with this sorrow, kind of intermingled with an anger and a frustration and an indignation towards the tyranny of his final enemy, death itself. I think all of this is going on right now in this story. And so then what happens next in verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. And then Martha, one of the sisters, she says to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for days. Now that sounds like a Maybe details that we don't even need to be thinking about or even be aware of. But I think what John wants us to see, especially in the sequence of how things unfold throughout the entire chapter, that there is no doubt that Lazarus is dead. 
We've talked about that a couple of times. If this had been the very next day after Lazarus's reported death, it could be assumed that maybe he was in a coma, a deep sleep. Maybe he was just really, really sick and he looked dead. But he's been dead for four days. And here, one of his own sisters isn't completely aware of that and said, Jesus, like, if you roll the stone away, like, he, he's been dead long enough that he's going to have a, an odor. And so John includes that detail so there's no doubt in our minds or in, in the minds of those here at this miracle to wonder, I wonder if Lazarus was really dead. And I think even the way that this is going to unfold in a minute further reveals that. But this tells us something about where Martha's at. Remember, she's been back and forth. I believe, but I have doubt. I believe, but I'm still hoping. And then Jesus said, do you believe that I am the Son of God? you believe? And she says, yes, I believe. And now here we are just a few verses later, and it seems like she's no longer believing, isn't it? Jesus, my brother's dead. Why, why would you want to roll the stone away? My brother is dead. And so what Jesus does in verse 40 is he reminds her, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? That's Jesus' way of saying, Martha, remember that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. We just had this conversation, Martha, just outside of town. Didn't I already tell you that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live? Didn't we just have this conversation? Didn't I ask you, do you believe in me? And you said, yes, Lord, I believe. Well, Martha, remember this. I am the resurrection and the life. Wherever I am, I bring life out of death. If you believe that, you will roll away the stone. And so I love this moment with Jesus reminding Martha of what is true. It's interesting whenever you study the Bible from cover to cover, how many times we're commanded to remember. I mean, even the Ten Commandments uh, about the Sabbath, we're, we're told to what? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? Because we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget the laws of God. We're prone to forget the goodness of God. We're prone to forget all that he has done. And when we do that, what happens is we allow doubt to steep in. Doubt to sneak up on us, and we begin to wonder, like, where is God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Where does God not love me anymore? Is God, can he not hear me anymore? And so Jesus here with Martha says, Martha, I need you to remember something. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And of course, the answer is, that's right, you did. So verse 41 So they took away the stone. They did that first. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And so what Jesus is saying is what I'm doing right now, God, is not just about what's happening in the tomb, but it's also about what you're doing in the hearts of the people who are standing around. And so this is happening in a very specific way. I think it's so interesting that Jesus didn't pray and then say, roll the stone away. Why? The miracle could have been just as valid for him to do it that way. Lazarus, wake up. Lazarus, come to life. Okay, roll the stone away so you can see that I performed a miracle. But what would the temptation be for the doubters there who are watching if Jesus had done that? Well, sure, that was just imagine. He was alive, and you just rolled around, the, rolled the stone away so we could see that he's alive. But Jesus didn't do it that way, did he? You're right, Martha. He has been dead for four days. He's dead, dead. 
So roll away the stone. And then I'm going to pray, and you're going to behold what? The glory of God. You're going to see that I have power over life and death. I am the resurrection and the life. And so they roll away the stone. Jesus prays. In verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. John knows that we know who the man is, but he wants to make sure that we don't forget that he was dead. Lazarus, the man who died, came out. His hands and feet were still bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now in the big picture of the gospel of John this is the final miracle validating that Jesus is the Messiah there will be other miracles that take place but in John's gospel this is the the last major public uh, miracle that validates Jesus's identity as the Messiah and this is proof that what Jesus said about being the power of the resurrection and the life that, that that he truly is the source of life the source of resurrection but my question is, how does that help us? How does that help me standing here today on this stage? How does that help you sitting in your living room, sitting in your car, sitting at work? Maybe you're, maybe you're out jogging, right? How does it help you to know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, revealing his glory, that he holds the power over life and death, and he is the resurrection? I think of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 and the way he describes our spiritual condition. I want to start in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, and I want you to listen to how Paul describes you and how he describes me apart from a miracle, apart from God working miraculously and powerfully in our lives. This is us, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is not simply a play on words or a metaphor. This is a literal description of our spiritual life apart from Christ. We are dead, spiritually dead. Not just spiritually struggling, not just spiritually sick. We're like Lazarus in the tomb, dead. Now, Lazarus did not raise himself from the dead, did he? He didn't roll away the stone to get out, did he? No, Jesus did all that. All Lazarus did was lay there as a dead man and receive the power of God. And this is what Paul is saying about our spiritual journey, that you and I, spiritually speaking, are as good as dead. Why? Because of the trespasses of our sins. You mean because of what Adam did in Genesis 2? Yes. You mean because of the sin in my heart from even today? Yes. Because of our sin, we are sentenced to death. The tyranny of death reigns over us. But if we continue reading in Ephesians 2, verse 4, we get to the good news of the gospel when Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now I want to read two more verses, but I'm going to stop here. 
This is a description of our salvation, that we were like Lazarus in the tomb, dead. We didn't make ourselves alive. We didn't wake ourselves up. We didn't make ourselves better, but Christ comes to us, and he makes us alive. We've been made alive together in Christ and raised up with him. So that same power working in Lazarus in the tomb is working in you and me as Christ's followers, and it has raised us to walk in a new life. And we've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All that Jesus is doing there in John chapter 11 to raise a physical body that has been dead for four days to the point that it has an odor and it comes back to life, God is working that power in you and me. Man, isn't that good news? That same power centered in the person of Christ is in you and me. And and I love this description. In verse 6 of Ephesians 2, that we've been raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's a description of eternity, you and me, post-final resurrection. We've been resurrected with new bodies, this new eternal life with Christ forever. We'll look back on this life and we'll go, my gosh, you can't measure the mercy of God. It's immeasurable. He's rich in mercy. Immeasurable kindness towards us that he would come to us in our spiritual tombs and awaken us to walk in a new life. Like that is good news. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. In the same way Lazarus didn't raise himself from the dead, that was a gift from Jesus, not only his personal friend, but his personal savior, so too is our salvation. And it's so important for us to understand our lives are just as desperate and hopeless as Lazarus's was in the tomb apart from Christ. We don't look on this story and go, oh, poor Lazarus, Jesus with indignation, looks at each one of our lives and says, oh, poor you. You're just as hopeless and broken. The same indignation and frustration towards the tyranny of death over Lazarus's life, Jesus has that same indignation and anger towards the tyranny of death over your life and my life. This is why everything that we believe as Christians hinges on his resurrection over the grave. Lazarus didn't raise himself from the grave, but Jesus raised himself from the grave displaying his power over sin and death. Our lives just as desperate, just as hopeless as Lazarus in the tomb. And without trusting in the resurrection of Jesus, my life, your life, we're shackled, we're bound. But not with linen cloths, we're bound with the shackles of guilt and shame, sentenced to death. There's nothing that I can do or that you can do in our own power to overcome this. We need a Savior. So I want to end this time today, first of all, just encouraging you to think about where you are in your journey and relationship with Christ. The first question and the most important question I could ask is, have you come to the place in your life? We just watched Mary and Martha's journey unfold. But where are you at in your journey? Have you come to the place in your journey that where you have proclaimed like Martha, I believe you are the Christ. Have you truly trusted in Jesus and him alone for your salvation? And if not, that's the most important decision you can make today. 
That's the most important thing you could hear God speak to you today through the scriptures is that Jesus has died and resurrected from the grave on your behalf and that believing in him, you would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name. You can do that right now where you are. And for those of us who have already taken that step of faith, it's for us to ask the question, how does Lazarus' resurrection from the grave give us hope? This tyranny of death is not just something waiting at the end of your life to pounce on you, but you, you encounter it every day. You encounter the implications of sin and death every day in the form of suffering, in the form of hardship, in the form of just frustrations and, and relational tension. And so how does the resurrection of Lazarus give you hope in your everyday life? As we learn through this chapter that the power of life and death is not just something we need. It centers on the person of Jesus himself. And so if that's true, then, then how essential is it to you that you spend time with Jesus every day? Think about that. You want the power of the resurrection to show up in your everyday life? Well, it's not gonna show up apart from Christ. And so what does your everyday journey with Christ look like? What does your personal time with Jesus look like? I'll just end with this final challenge to you something that we've been talking about even amongst our staff here at the church is that we can have all the great intentions in the world to spend time with Christ, to draw away, to pray, to meditate, to read, and, and all these great practices of spiritual disciplines. But if we don't put it in our calendar, it never happens. And so I'm not only asking you, what does your personal time with Jesus look like? Like I'm asking, when are you planning on doing it? Don't just raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm gonna spend time with Jesus this week. My question is, when are you gonna do it? Like put it in your calendar. Make it a priority. Make it one of those things that everything else has to work around instead of the other way around. Instead of trying to fit it into your busyness, put that on the calendar first and then let everything else follow. And so I wanna leave you with those questions and those challenges as we get ready to pray together. As I pray, I'm gonna encourage you wherever you're at right now, unless you're driving, don't close your eyes, but just to join your heart with me in prayer as we've heard from God today, let's pray now on how he might want us to respond and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you for this powerful message from John chapter 11. Father, it's easy to read this story and to think this is all about you and Lazarus and not even realize that what you're doing in this story is also about us. And Father, we confess along with Mary and Martha and Lazarus that our spiritual condition is desperate. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. There is no source of power over the grave. There is no source of freedom from the shackles of sin. And so right now, any person who is listening to this that does not know you personally, I'm praying that that Ephesians 2 made alive promise would take place. That by trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that Jesus, you would do a powerful work right now in someone's life. And for those of us who would like to think that we've already made that decision and we've already put on the t-shirt that says, yes, I am in Christ, that now we will begin to think about how that works out in our everyday life. We confess we desperately need the power of the resurrection on a daily basis, but we also recognize that that power of the resurrection does not come to us apart from Christ, apart from your Holy Spirit. And so what we need is a daily relationship journey of obedience with you.
And so now I pray you would do what only you can do, God. Your Holy Spirit would begin to move and work. Wherever each person is who's listening to this, God, that they would sense your nearness and that your spirit would begin to speak and work. And Father, that we would respond in faith. In the powerful name of he who holds the power over life and death, he who is the resurrection and the life, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.